passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. I came back, and it was gone. I mean, I'd only had it for about a, a week. And you say, what, what was gone? It was my Sony Walkman. Do you guys know what a Sony Walkman is? Now, the younger people have no clue. They're like, I mean, it played cassette decks, cassettes. You know what a cassette is? That those who are older understand what cassettes are. You know, it, it wouldn't be worth much today, but it was cutting edge technology in my time. And I had a special one. This was not any Walkman, but this was a yellow Sony Sports Walkman, and it had the little um, solar panel on the side to recharge it. And it was perfect for me because that summer I had a job. And my job was I was part of the lawn maintenance crew at college. So I spent most of my summers walking around with a weed eater in my hand, trimming around trees and trimming under bushes for countless hours. And a Sony Walkman, my new Sony Walkman, was exactly the distraction I needed to cut out the whine of that engine and the day had it. It was a hot day. It was a sweaty day. It was a July day, sort of like the kind we had this past week. I was outside, and I was trimming along a long row of bushes that was on the west edge of campus. And my Walkman ran out of batteries. It went dead. And with being so sweaty and having that sticky cord on you, I said, I don't want to keep this thing on me. So I took it off, I wrapped it up a little ball, and I put it under a bush, because where it's a long row of bushes, hit it in the back of the bush so nobody could see it. And my thought was, I'll just keep weed whacking under these things all the way to the end of the row, which is quite a distance away. I'll come back and get it on my return trip. So I kept weed whacking. I mean, nobody would have seen me put it there. It was hidden under a bush. Went quite a distance away. It was out of sight of the Walkman, but when I came back to get it, it was gone. Somebody stole it. And I remember the feelings in that moment. I was angry. I felt violated. You know how much hard-earned cash I had to spend to get a Sony Walkman? I reported it to the, the campus police, but I never heard of it again. Has anyone else experienced that feeling where someone has stolen something from you? Taking something right out from under your nose? You felt angry? You felt violated? Anybody else been there? Yeah, I, I hope so. Just me. I'm the only guy. Yeah. We've all had a lot of these things stolen from us when we feel like we want to go and pursue the criminal. This morning, we are going to be talking about the subject of stealing. And, you know, I'm talking about stealing of my Walkman. I've had other things stolen from my life, and I'm sure you've had things a little bit more egregious and, and more serious stolen from your life. But I think I want to begin by just making this point that stealing is much bigger than we realize. It is much more common than we realize. In fact, most of modern life, the way we have structured it, is simply to stop people from stealing from us. Let me give you some examples. Look at your house. 
Anybody have a lock in their door? Who here has a security system in their house? A couple people? Yeah. Okay, who has the ultimate security system? A shotgun under their bed. Yeah, that, you put your hand, everyone wants to put their hand up at that point because, you know, nobody's going to be stealing from your house once that's out there. Let's look at your car. Anybody have a lock in their car? Anybody have an alarm on their car? Who's gone so far as to have a low jack system? You know, when they steal your car, it like traces them and you hunt them down. You know, that's a lot of stuff. Let's look at technology. Look at your, your cell phone. Anybody have a password on their phone? Anybody have a thumbprint recognition or a facial ID recognition? Look at websites. Anybody have passwords to get in? Your bank website has like multiple layers of authentication. Why are all these things in place? To stop the thief, to stop the stealing. Look at shopping. Anybody been in a store where they have security cameras? In fact, you probably don't realize it, but they are all over the place, well hidden so you can't see them to stop the thief. Anybody been in a store where they have those little tags in the clothing so you can't take it out? Ah, it's to stop the thief. By the way, even the Walmart greeters, just so you know, they are not there to greet you when you go in. They are there to technically stop you when you go out. And why? To stop the thief. Because so many people are stealing nowadays. It, it makes me laugh when people say that other folks are basically good. And technically, no, we are not basically good people. We're basically evil people. We're selfish people. We're sinful people. Quite honestly, Every one of us by nature is a thief. Every one of us by nature will steal. Not often do we often, many times we don't steal physical things, but oftentimes we'll steal time, we'll steal effort, we'll do all kinds of other things to steal in subtle ways. Now, some of you have seen the debates that have gone on on the news media recently. Let's, you know, let's get rid of the border let anybody you want come in. Get rid of any border and immigration services. Nobody can stop. Don't stop anybody from coming and going through our country. Now, I'm not trying to be political on this. I'm trying to be practical on this. Let's think about this. The people who want to get rid of the border, let's just see if they want to, like, take off the locks in their houses. Let's just see if they want to leave the keys in their car. Let's see if they want to publish their credit card information on the Internet. They're not going to be real happy about that, are they? Because somebody's going to steal it. If we need all kinds of security measures to protect us from thieves that are on the inside of our nation, why wouldn't we need security measures to protect us from the thieves that are on the outside of our nation? Like I said, I'm not trying to be political. I'm just trying to be practical because... The there are so many thieves in existence. In fact, each one of us by nature, if we're put in the right circumstances, in the right situations, as we're going to see, there's lots of them, we'll steal. Maybe not overtly, but we'll steal covertly. My favorite quote on this is Martin Luther. Martin Luther says this. He said, if all the thieves in the world were hung, the world would not have enough rope. 
we would have to hang men by their belts. In other words, he's making the point that stealing is very pervasive in our society and in our world. Now, as a church, we are studying our way through the Ten Commandments. And this morning, we are in the eighth of the Ten Commandments. And it's a real short and sweet commandment. So take out your outlines and look at it. And we're just going to read it. It's only four words. You shall not steal. That's really interesting, easy reading of the text. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what does this commandment mean? Then we're going to look at how we often steal in ways we don't realize it. Then we're going to look at why God gave it, and what does it look like for us to obey it. So let's go ahead and jump into the notes. First of all, what does this commandment mean? It's very clear, very straightforward. Notice there's absolutely no footnotes in this commandment whatsoever. It says, you shall not steal. <coughs> it doesn't matter if you have zero of something, and your friend has two of something, and he's not using them. You don't get to steal it. And he's like, well, he has two. I have, I have zero. I need one. It says don't steal. And by the way, it doesn't say you get to rob from the rich and give to the poor. That's Robin Hood. Robin Hood is not a biblical character. Look as much as you want. He's not in there. It just says you shall not steal. Now, in Hebrew, by the way, sorry about the text correct here. It's not gang. It's ganaf. G-A-N-A-F is the Hebrew word. It means to take anything that is not your property. It does not matter the extenuating circumstances. Don't steal. Now, if you're taking notes, here's what I want you to do. Circle the word anything, because that's the key part of this Hebrew word ganaf. Don't take anything. Now, let me just explain to you what we mean by anything. How do we steal? What most people who are Christians don't realize is that we violate this command too. There's a survey I, I studied, read about, and it says that nine out of ten Christians believe they don't violate the Eighth Commandment. Let's look at what it means by anything. Number one, stealing is obviously theft. It's robbery. It's burglary. It's larceny. It's hijacking. It's shoplifting. It's pickpocketing. It's embezzlement. It's extortion. It's casual theft. Anybody ever been to a hotel and left with a towel? Stealing. One hotel, they pointed out the fact that in a year they lost 38,000 spoons taken by, by patrons. 355 coffee pots. Unfortunately, only 100 Gideon Bibles were missing. So we would hopefully steal more Gideon Bibles and leave the spoons behind. Now, stealing can take place from the government. You know, we can choose not to honestly pay our taxes. Or it can actually take place by the government. And by that, we talk about bureaucratic waste, lack of efficiency by the government, stealing from us or even if you want to call it the national debt, because the national debt is what? Technically stealing from future citizens. Stealing can take place at work. One of my sons, he has the job where he has to turn in a time card at the end of the day. And he has to be honest each day exactly when he started and exactly when he stopped. And to round up, well, that could be stealing. Stealing at work is, takes place when we decide we're going to take a sick day and we're actually not sick. 
Stealing at work comes when you have a professional expense account and you start to use it for private purchases. But most commonly, and we'll talk more about this later in the message, stealing at work takes place by wasting time at work. For those of you who uh, would like to know a little bit about this, the most common way that employees steal at work is just sort of dawdling on the internet at work. That ever happened to you? Just a little study break, you know, I'm going to just surf for a little bit, do a little social media, a couple Facebook posts, maybe a little YouTube. There's some great fail blogs on there, by the way. I found that during work. Uh, no. <laughs> And then what do we do? We, we send that video to our, another work friend so he can watch it and waste his time during work, just like, like we wasted our time during work. One guy I was a friend of when I first was in ministry, and he was a youth pastor. And interesting. He confided in me. He says, I'm not too sure what to do when I'm in the office. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I, I photocopied the lessons out of the books, but I wasn't too sure what to do. So I've just been playing video games I'm like, dude, you're paid. Like, read the Bible. Unless you know it, you should be reading that at least, not playing video games. But it's technically he was stealing from his employer. Business practices. Many business practices can involve stealing. You ever heard of price gouging? <laughs> uh, reminded me of this when I was thinking about this. Uh, when we went into the Iraq war, I forget which one it was. I remember seeing it on television. One gas station started charging over $10 a gallon for gas on the day of the invasion and sent everybody into a complete panic. And they quickly discovered that there's no shortage in gasoline. It's just somebody was trying to take advantage of the day and trying to price gouge. They're trying to steal how about the car market? Anybody think there's stealing that takes place there? Sometimes in the used car market. You ever had that? Where somebody takes and they sell a car. Hey, this is the best car out there. Absolutely no problems with this vehicle. Not being honest. They're stealing. A friend of mine was talking to me this week. And he... Uh, his friend, who's also a mutual friend of mine, was a former employee at a dealership. And they had the GM certified vehicles. And they have to do these GM certified tests. And the, the mechanic went through it. And he said, by the way, these things have to be repaired. And the owner of the, the dealership looked at it and said, well, we're only going to repair part of those. And then he went and certified it as a GM certified vehicle. What was he doing? Stealing. Stealing from the future customer. <laughs> by not being honest about what they had and hadn't done. I'll give you another way stealing takes place. You ever heard of the credit card companies? Some credit card companies steal. They charge exorbitant interest rates. And what they do is they try to send their cards to people who are financially tight, people who are desperate for money, so they can put their money on the card and then charge 20% interest to them. It's a way of not being fair to the poor. It's a way of taking advantage of them. You ever heard of stealing of intellectual property? In my day, did you ever copy a cassette deck? You ever duplicate a CD? Ever download software illegally because you didn't want to buy it and pay for it? Did you ever plagiarize in a paper? Stealing. 
Stealing of intellectual property. Now, I just spent a few minutes just to, to, to tease this out. Because like I said at the beginning, nine out of ten Christians claim they haven't broke this command. But when you realize this command is stealing anything, we realize that we break this command just like other people and we steal. Now, let's look at why. Why is stealing wrong? First point, every theft is a failure to trust in God's provision for my life. When we take what doesn't belong to us, we're denying that God will provide what we need. Isn't that true? If God wants us to do something, he'll provide what we need to be able to accomplish it. One of the ways that God shuts a door in our life is he doesn't provide the resources we need to be able to accomplish something. So when we steal, say, I, I need this or I want this, what we're saying is, God, you haven't provided this, so I need to have this to do what I want to do. But God doesn't want you doing that. That's why he hasn't provided it. Easy way to get outside of God's will. Some of you may have heard this story before because after a while you sort of end up recycling some of them, but I'll tell it again because others of you haven't heard it. Uh, when I first started in seminary, I started at Westminster Theological Seminary. Now, Westminster, I quickly learned, is a jumping-off point for those who want to do a PhD at Cambridge. So there'd be a lot of guys there that were extremely academically competitive, they knew they had to maintain almost a perfect 4.0 if they're going to get their PhD program at Cambridge. I also heard when I was there, and it's sort of just sort of a rumor, that sometimes professors recycled old tests. Well, at first when I was there, I, I remember one of the things that people would do is we would study together, you'd get previous tests, and, and they would say, hey, these are some of the kind of questions that you would be asked, and you'd look at the kind of questions that the professor would ask in the exam. And I was like, okay, well, that was good. And I remember going into one exam, when this has begun, and I'm like, it was the same exam. He completely recycled the test. And I'm taking the test and I'm feeling incredibly guilty for the test. And I went to the guy who was passing around the exams. I said, we can't do this. This is cheating. It's not being honest. And I didn't do that anymore, just so I can tell you that. But I remember what he said. I have to do that. Because that's the only way I can keep my grades up high enough so I can get into Cambridge. Like, if you have to do that to get into Cambridge, God doesn't want you in Cambridge. It's practical faith, isn't it? And I say this because if you are a high school student or you're a middle school student or even if you're a college student, you never have to steal, you never have to cheat to get you where God wants you to go. If you have to be dishonest to get you where God wants you to go, God doesn't want you to be there. It's always right to do what's right and not to steal. Let me flip on the other side. Every theft is also taking away God's provision from somebody else's life. You know, even if somebody has extra and you have scarcity, it does not give us the right to take it from them. 
Because if they have extra, maybe God's desire is that they would sell it. Or maybe God's desire is they would have the privilege of giving it away rather than stealing and taking it away. So when we steal, we deny someone else God's provision for their life. Now, let me just move out of the theoretical. Let's move more into the practical. Let me spend a little time talking about work. Let's talk about how uh, we steal in the work environment, because this is probably the most common place that stealing takes place. How do we steal on the job? First thing let's look at is employers can steal from their employees, and we'll show you many ways this takes place. James chapter 5, 4 through 5. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, they're crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence, and you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. So what has happened here, we have a guy who's a rich guy. He has some nice fields. He's asked some workers to come in and to harvest the fields for him. Most likely these are day workers. So, you know, you get paid at the end of the day. And the rich guy has plenty of cash. And he gets to the end of the day and he says, well, you know, I agreed to give you $10. But, you know, I'm only going to give you $8. Sort of cutting down the wages. Or maybe he said, I agreed to give you $10, but you know what? I don't have it with me right now. Why don't you come back tomorrow and I'll pay you $20? So what he's doing is he's taking his financial position and he's using it to leverage his employees. He's not being completely honest and transparent with his employees. And this is stealing. I'll give you some examples. This week I was uh, talking to a friend and he had agreed to, to work for a company just recently. And he had been working there a few weeks and he said, well, this is the rate that you agreed to hire me for, but my paycheck, it's $200, $300 short each time. Why are you doing that? Well, we changed the rate, but that's not the rate you agreed upon. Well, you told me what the rate was. Do you have it in writing now? dishonest. A dishonest employer who changed the rate. Another example. Sometimes employers will make it extremely complicated and difficult for an employee to get their paycheck. This sometimes happens in the construction business. You know, well, to get paid, you need to get approval. We need to get approval from our boss to get approval from his boss. And then it's approval after approval, which really is just delay after delay after delay. What it's designed to do is leave the workers holding the bag while the guys who actually are supposed to pay for the work get to keep their money. It's totally James chapter 5. Folks, it's not wrong to be a rich employer. It's wrong to be a rich employer who refuses to pay or who delays the payment or who manipulates the payment to the people who are expecting to get paid. If you are in business for yourself, you probably have experienced this kind of stuff. You agree to do the work and people pay you sort of half up front. And you do the work and sometimes does the rest of the money come in? <laughs> no. 
Sometimes they start to delay paying you, and they wait to pay for you, and they hold you, and they string you out, so you are carrying the financial stress of the load. Is there anything wrong with what was done? Nope, nothing was really wrong. Or if there is anything wrong, it's a little minor thing, but we're not going to pay you. That's just being a thief. That's what it is. The worst kind of uh, employer this way is an employer that goes, you know what, we'll pay you, here's the money we'll give you, you get going on the work, you get to the end of the work, and they sit there and they go, hmm, I'm going to reduce the bill. <laughs> I wonder how much it would cost him if he did a lawsuit on me. And if it cost him this much and this much time and effort, I'm just going to reduce the bill by this amount <laughs> because I know that it won't be worth him suing me, but I can pay less. That happens. And that's being a thief. It's being a flat-out thief on your workers. It is totally James chapter 5. And this is what God says. You have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. The cries of the workers have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies. Here's the deal. If you can get away with cheating your employees in this life, the reality is we all stand before Jesus and you have never gotten away cheating your employees in the next life. And even if you are a Christian, you will lose eternal rewards for cheating your employees. And by, quite honestly, by the definition of an eternal reward, everything you lose will be far, everything you lose in heaven will be far more than anything you gained on earth. It's always right to do what's right. Now let's flip it around the other side. We looked at how employers can cheat their employees. Let's look at how employees can steal from their boss. Titus chapter 2, 9 through 10. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. There's the stealing thing but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior. Now, we talk talks here about bond servants. We don't have bond servants today, but a bond servant and master relationship is very similar to a modern-day employer and employee relationship. So this is essentially talking about employees. What does it mean to be a good employee that brings honor to Jesus? Number one, he says this, be submissive in everything and get the job done. Do what your boss asks you to do. Be well-pleasing, which means be the kind of employee that gives your boss pleasure and satisfaction. If you've been a boss, you know that there are sometimes there are employees you love and you're proud of, and oftentimes there are employees that you just sort of tolerate. You're not overly proud of them. They get the job done, but you're not really just thrilled with them. Now, here's the difference. You can get the job done, but there are some employees that treat the job like you would treat the job. They give it the same kind of effort. They give it the same kind of intensity. They give it the same kind of care not acting like they own the business, but caring about the business as if they owned it. And the employer is pleased with them. The employer loves them. Be that kind of employee 
who cares about the kind of job you do, not just check in and check out. Not being argumentative, which means not fighting with your boss. And then comes the part that sort of zooms into what we're talking about, not pilfering. In other words, don't be stealing stuff from work. Now, when it talks about stealing, you know, there's a, you can steal paper, you can steal pens, you can steal all kinds of stuff, but most commonly what gets stolen is time. What they say is the average worker wastes two hours every day. So if you work an eight-hour day, the average worker is only working six of those eight hours. The other two hours are chit-chat and you know, just kind of messing around stuff. So we do not think that's too big of a deal until you all of a sudden apply it to yourself. Like, think of it this way. You decide to go to Spud Nuts. You go down to Spud Nuts, you buy eight donuts. You get into the car, you open the bag up, it's missing two. It's only six donuts. You go back in. I paid for eight donuts. Donuts, And the guy behind the counter says, well, this is the way you work day. You pay for eight, you only get six. Like, who's going to be happy with that? Anybody? I don't think so. If we're not happy about getting shortchanged on two of our donuts, an employer is not real happy about getting shortchanged about two hours out of his employee. You see, the big idea here is our work or the way we work is our witness at work. When it comes to witnessing for Jesus, oftentimes at work, it's not our words. It's the way we work is our witness. The quality, the intensity the faithfulness, being able to work extra hours if need be. And all of a sudden, the boss goes, I really like this person. They work differently from other people. Other people, they only work six out of the eight hours, but these people actually work eight out of the eight hours and nine if need be. You see, you're being a witness for Jesus Christ in the way you work. Number five, let me give you some, a flipped angle here. We steal from God when we don't worship him with our wealth. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. The Bible says that as Christians, we are to worship him with our wealth. And the truth is, that many Christians say, I love Jesus more than anything, but when the offering plate goes by, I don't give Jesus anything. I love Jesus more than anything, but when it comes to worship, he doesn't get anything. There's a problem with that picture, isn't there? Now, Malachi says this, that in that day, God's people were robbing God by not giving their tithes and their contributions. What are these things? A tithe 
at this time. And just so you know, a tithe technically means 10%. Every uh, $10 you get, $1 is the Lord's. And interesting here, you notice it's multiple tithes, plural, because in the Old Testament, there were multiple tithes given, totaling up to 25, 27%. And it was not just their worship time, but it was also their government time. And God's people were not giving that at this time in the Old Testament. The other thing they weren't giving besides their tithes was their contributions. That is giving above their regular first fruits giving. They weren't giving any special gifts to special needs. And just so you know, this oftentimes went to the poor. Now, let me just be real technical. Tithing, by the way, is an Old Testament thing. It is not a New Testament thing, as people like to point that out to me, which is right. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 says the way that New Testament Christians are to give in worship to God is they should give generously, sacrificially, proportionately, and cheerfully. In other words, it may not be generous for you to say 10% is what I should give to the Lord in worship. But we find a percentage, a proportion that we give to the Lord that is sacrificial and that is generous for us and that we can give cheerfully and we give that to the Lord in worship. For most of us, tithing or 10% is, should be more of a floor. It shouldn't be a ceiling. That's my personal thought on that issue. Now, I say this to you because I've been doing some research on giving recently. Christian Smith wrote a book called Passing the Plate, and there's an alarming statistic in this book that is very well researched. He says this, that in the average church, one in every five church-attending Christians give absolutely nothing in worship to the Lord. That's robbery. It's being a thief, saying, God, I love you more than anything, but when the offering plate goes by, I don't want to give anything. Jesus uh, says it this way, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I know some of us say, well, in my life, it's financially tough right now. The answer to that is scarcity reveals priority. Scarcity reveals priority. The other thing I, I've learned as I've done some research on giving is that of those who do give, there are now more things than ever that compete for what is a, a Christian's giving pool. Let's just argue this out theoretically. Let's just say you've chosen to give 10% of your income to the Lord in worship. Now, there's more and more people that are saying, well, there are so many good things out there. You know, I want to support this missionary, and I want to support this ministry, and I want to support this radio program, and I want to support Samaritan's Purse and Billy Graham's, and the list goes on and on. And then I have to support my church. And so what happens is then people start to divide up what they want to give. And so the local church may end up with 2% of their giving as they scatter their giving throughout the rest of their places that they desire. 
Now, I understand. I understand that way that oftentimes we approach giving. And I used to think that way. And then when I was in seminary, I happened to be attending a church where there's a pastor giving a sermon on giving. And he said something that has stuck with me ever since that time. He said in that sermon, he said, if everybody in this church gave the way you do, would this church survive? If everybody in this church gave the way you do, would this church survive? And it was really convicting to me because uh, as a student, by the way, I don't think anybody could survive what I was able to give at that point. But it made me realize that in the church, I was a taker and not a giver. That a mature Christian would be known as a giver more than they would be known as a taker. Let me think this through with you. I'm not against giving to missionaries or other organizations. I'm all for that. But here's the way it works. If you are a missionary, you can go to as many churches as you want to gather support. If you are a parachurch organization, uh, like a radio program, you can go to anywhere you want, and you can solicit all kinds of people to have a very wide support base. But for the local church... It has a very narrow support base. You and me are it. Would this church survive if everyone gave like you do? It's a very convicting question. Randy Alcorn uh, wrote a book called Money, Possessions, and Eternity. And in his book, he has a chapter that he talks about this, the priority of giving to the local church versus the priority of giving to, uh, would you call it, extra organizations or, or missionaries. And he says it this way, and I think he says it well. He says, for Christians, the giving to the local church is where their giving should start. It always starts with giving to the local church. It doesn't mean that giving to the local church is where their giving should stop. But it always begins here because we're all there is. You see, the other thing he noticed is this. By the way, in the New Testament, all giving, even to giving to places that are beyond the church, were actually all done through the local church. Paul talks about the giving for the poor in Jerusalem. And where did he say that giving should take place? On the first day of the week, when people gathered for worship at the local church, they were to give towards that. So the giving went through the local church to the special needs in the global church. Just so you know, that is a pattern that we follow here at Crosswinds. 10% of all income we receive goes to missionaries that we have chosen to support. And why have we chosen to support certain missionaries? Because we have developed a relationship with them. We know what they are doing is actually getting the gospel out. And so there's a relationship there. It's not just money we're throwing away. Just so you know, over $80,000 was put into missions through Crosswinds Church. And even more this coming year. Because we try to raise our missions giving on a 10% basis, roughly at that point. So when you give to Crosswinds Church, you are giving to missions. 
Just so you know, some of you would say, well, I'd like to give to benevolence needs. Find people that are in, in dire straits and help them out. And I completely encourage you to do that. By the way, um, as elders in your church, we are very much aware of people that are in need. Single moms that are going through really difficult times. And God's people have been generous. I think it's either last year or the year before. I have to double check my numbers. But we gave, around, we gave over $60,000 in benevolence to help people in our church family in desperate times of need. Give to the benevolence fund of the church. I guarantee you it'll get to the hands of people who are in need. So here's my point. First fruits giving. It should go to the local church. That's where giving should start, but that isn't where giving should stop. The, bar- the base on the local church giving is always narrow. The base on the parachurch giving is always wide. So think about that when it comes to how we give. So the two things when it comes to robbing God they want to identify. One in every five Christians are not giving anything which is a flat-out robbery. You can't say you love God and then put nothing in worship to him. Number two is understanding the priority of the local church. If everyone gave like me, would my church survive? Now, let's flip to the other side here. Say we, as we've been talking through this, say that you have come under the conviction that, you know what? I realize I've been a thief. I've stolen from people. I haven't been honest. Maybe I've stolen little things. Maybe I've stolen in big things. What should I do? And here's the answer. If I have stolen, I need to super abundantly restore. Let's have some fun from Exodus. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it and sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Now, I'm guessing that most of you have not stolen oxes and sheep recently. But you can just translate this. I mean, if a man steals a laptop, he should restore it with five laptops. If a man steals a cell phone, he should restore it with four cell phones. I mean, the point is this. If you have taken something, the right way to fix something is to super abundantly restore You don't just ask God to forgive you. You go to the person that you have taken something from and you don't just give them back what you took, but you give them back what you took plus much more. Because here's the deal. You know when you steal something, people will be talking. They will talk about what you stole. But you want to change what they talk about from what you stole to how you restored and healed that relationship. Yeah, he, he took my phone, but he came back. He gave me that phone, and he gave me money towards a new phone. Man, I can't get over how he much, he much he went out of the way to restore what he had taken. You see how that works? When you're st- People are either going to talk about your stealing or your healing. Make sure they talk about how you super abundantly restore. Last thing is this. Jesus is the only way to restore my debt to God. 
Think of it this way. When Jesus died on the cross, you know, he hung between two thieves, didn't he? Between two people who had broken the 10th or 8th commandment. But the two thieves responded to Jesus in two different ways. The one thief turned to him and said this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. Because Jesus completely forgave his sin. In fact, Jesus died for his sin. But that wasn't the way the other thief reacted. He looked at Jesus and he mocked him. He laughed at him and he turned away from him. And when he closed his eyes for the last time that day, he opened it up in eternity to begin to pay for his sin, which ultimately brings him to the lake of fire. The truth is that the question we're asking is not, are you a thief? Each one of us is a thief. The only question that matters is, which thief are you? Are you the one that has turned to Jesus, confessed your sin to Jesus, and trusted him to forgive you for what you've stolen? Or are you the thief that turned to Jesus and mocked Jesus and decided to go it on your own? Each one of us is a thief. The only question that matters is which thief are you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we just want to confess that while we may not have stolen big things, in dishonest we, all of us, have at least stolen small things. Whether it's everything from copying music <laughs> to copying things off the internet. And Lord, we also want to confess that many of us have robbed you. We've said we love you more than anything, but we haven't followed that up with giving anything. We just ask for forgiveness. And I pray that you would help us to live in honor to you and to be the thief that has turned and trusted in you, not the one that turned away and mocked. In Christ's name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.